Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I am very excited because I have with me Lindsay Pollock, who is a best-selling author, a speaker, and a career and workplace expert. I know Lindsay very well in the sense that I've read all of her books and I followed her for pretty much all of my career as her books and her talks were very inspirational to me as I was starting and growing uh, early in my career and also as I've built my own career in the career and workplace space. So I'm very excited to have Lindsay on with me, if anything, just to finally get a chance to thank her for all the work help that she's been to me, but also to share with the rest of the audience out there. Lindsay has been researching, studying, and thinking about the workplace and careers for a big portion of her career. And she's written many books on it. What I want to talk about today um, is her most recent book, Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work, but also more broadly speaking, you know, how can people thrive in this changing world of work? And I think this is a really big topic that I've been thinking about a lot and certainly get a lot of questions about. And I know Lindsay is the perfect person to talk about this. So first and foremost, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the MBA Insider Podcast. It's so great to have you on here. And I guess just to start off, I know that you have been in this space in terms of media for a while. And so I assume, and particularly as an author, you've probably read a book or two, maybe you listen to a couple podcasts, or maybe you've watched uh, some Netflix. So I would love to know from you, what's a book you've read, a podcast you've listened to, or a show that you've watched recently? Al, it is so nice to be here. I have been following your career trajectory as well. And thank you for that very nice introduction. It makes me feel good to know that you've been reading what I write and put out there. I'm going to go a little rogue here. We could talk about business and career books all day, and I read as many as I can, but I am currently obsessed with the Netflix Formula One show, Drive to Survive. And that's pretty much all I want to talk about. I was just consulting with a client yesterday, and I think we spent about half the time talking about uh, Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. So that's my current uh, Netflix queue. I'm really glad you brought that up. It actually brings back good (laughs) memories to a weekend during probably the middle of the fall of 2020. I want to say I was actually at the time I was living in San Francisco, but I I was visiting my sister who lives in Southern California. And I was at her place and she was telling me, oh, we just started watching the Formula One show. And I'll be very transparent. I'm a pretty big sports fan had not followed Formula One at all. And it took me about one episode and I was hooked. And we literally <laughs> spent the next like four days watching. I mean, it, for her rewatching, for me watching all of that. And it was fascinating to me not to bring this back to business or career or workplace or anything, but just looking at all of the moving pieces that those teams have to go through in order to be at peak performance and the roles that people have to play. Again, trying not to bring this back to work too much, but I think there was a lot of lessons in there, at least for me, just observing it, just in terms of how people work together, being able to know your role, uh, the fact that they were so willing to study the tape and try to look for opportunities to improve and all those types of things. I was definitely nerding out on it as a sports fan, but I was also nerding out of it as someone who thinks about teams and collaboration and learning and whatnot. 
obviously I will totally nerd out on this with you because <laughs> that's what we have in common. And I couldn't agree more. I see, unfortunately, everything through the lens of generational difference and personal brand and collaboration and servant leadership. And I will play off of what you said. I think they do a very good job on the show. And for anyone who doesn't watch, they show that, yes, there is a driver who is sort of the star, but there are also hundreds of people back at the headquarters and in the factory and in the pit and running the business and doing the PR. And I think they do a really good job of showing that the person who is out front is also supported by a lot of people. And that said, I think they also do a really good job of showing how the drivers not only have to be good, but have to really maintain their brand which yeah. is not just their own, but on behalf of the hundreds of people on their team and sometimes the history of the organization, like a Ferrari that they work for that has a Williams that has a huge history. So yeah, I think you can talk about a lot of these themes related to Drive to Survive. That's so funny. Uh, Netflix, you can thank us later for giving yeah. you free, <laughs> free, free advertising. Really. <laughs> free, free advertising. Okay. Before we jump in, I wanted to talk to you about one thing. I was doing some research on you and I remember reading this in one of your books, but I know that when you were in college, one of your roles was being an RA or a resident assistant. And I always love digging into the past of people and, and when they were growing up, but I would love to know what being an RA in college, uh, what was that experience like? And could you draw any parallels to how it's come back to be relevant to you and your career journey? I, I can't tie it to my Formula One obsession, but I can pretty much tie it to everything else I've done. And, and I know that one of the kind of basic coaching exercises for anybody who isn't sure what they want to do in their career is to think back to childhood, right? And what did you enjoy doing? And I'm the oldest of three children. I always liked being the team leader, you know, the group head, babysitting. And in college, I really didn't find my place. I did fine academically, but I wasn't sort of in a particular extracurricular activity that I loved. I did a little of this, little of that. And it wasn't until my senior year when I applied to be an RA and became one that it just clicked that this felt right. And it was one of those moments where you're happy and you know you're happy and you're aware of being happy. And what I somewhat regret is that it didn't occur to me to tie that to my ultimate career choice. <laughs> I sort of didn't make the leap that, well... I could kind of be an RA for my career. I wish at the time I had known that student affairs was a job or career services or recruiting. I knew a little bit about, you know, maybe admissions, but other than that, it didn't occur to me to do that. And, and I think one of the things I've learned is when you really enjoy something, figure out how to incorporate that into your career. Because what I think I realized maybe 10 years later when I wrote Getting from College to Career was, wow, that RA job was the best thing I ever did. And I think I've kind of been an RA ever since, mentoring and giving advice and yeah. kind of taking lessons from my own life and passing it on. So I think it was a really formative experience. Yeah, I totally can see that. And part of the reason why I asked you about it is because I was an RA in college. And oh, I knew it. See, there you go. Yeah. So it was a selfish question, but the and I would add to what you just said was, so I was at the other end of the spectrum in the sense that I was involved in everything. If there was a, a leadership role, it was something that I, I did. But the one thing I will say that did help me in the moment, but helped me more in my career was I was fortunate that in a couple of those roles, particularly like being an RA, that I had other people who said to me, hey, you're actually really good at that. That was really helpful for me because, I mean, obviously it felt good to know that other people were acknowledging it, but I had enough self-awareness or I had enough mentors around me to say, hey, maybe you should look for more opportunities where you could do that. And I'm playing a little revisionist history, but I do think over the years as I've gone through my career, 
I've tried to remember when people have told me you're good at something and really distilling down into what that thing is. Because to your point, what you do as an RA very much comes maybe not directly into what you're doing now, but there are very much elements of it that are very much alive. As I look at your career, I can see how those would come alive in all those moments. That to me was the, the parallel. Yeah, I think I did have that experience with speaking. I was on a Rotary scholarship to graduate okay. school. And one of the things yep. you had to do as a Rotary scholar was give speeches at Rotary clubs. And I yep. really enjoyed it and I liked it, but I had no idea that that was a career path. And it was really Rotarians who would say to me after, you know, you should do more of this. You yeah. know, you should build yeah. this into your career. So I think those moments, and I encourage all of us who are a little further in our careers to say those things. Yeah. to younger people, because I didn't know until yeah. somebody suggested it. It sounds like you had a similar experience. I did. And I definitely think to what you just said, if you have any kind of work experience or more senior experience and you are talking to someone, that is something I very much encourage. And you know, the one thing that you don't have when you're, you're younger is as much robust experience or maybe as much context. And so I think in the case of you and me, because other people around us who had more context could shine a light on not only a skill we had, but also to expand our aperture about how that might be used in other ways. That's really what opens up, you know, the opportunities, right? And because, you know, sometimes you can always see what you can see and, and you can't always see beyond that. Well, I'm glad being an RA has paid off for you as it has for me. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was just for the past decade or if not longer, you've studied, researched, written, spoken, talked about work and careers. I would love to know what's different today. And today is roughly March, 2022. But what's different today about working careers that wasn't true when you initially started writing and researching and talking about these topics? Oh, it's such a good question. And I'll rattle off a couple of things and you can tell me what's interesting. Uh, my very first job out of grad school, I, of course, didn't listen to those Rotarians or anyone who told me what I should do. And I, I went and I got a, a media job at a website called workingwoman.com. It was part of Working Woman magazine. And we were covering all of this stuff. And uh, I think one of the biggest changes I've seen that was in 2000, so about 22 years ago, was that topics like work-life integration, well-being, mental health, even kind of career happiness, so to speak, were considered women's issues or kind of soft issues. And one of the changes that I have seen is those are now human issues. And it is perfectly acceptable for someone of any gender to talk about parental leave, to talk about well-being at work. You know, I think the changes now, obviously, with the pandemic of talking about hybrid work and flex time, that really started 20 years ago. The other thing I'll say with technology is that I started my career when we were on the phone a lot. And even email was relatively new. And this is such a funny thing to call out, but I think it's significant. Offices now are very quiet and work is very quiet. And one of the ways I really learned, particularly how to communicate at work, was by overhearing more experienced people talk, talk on the phone, you know, have experiences. We certainly do that on Zoom and in meetings, but the sort of availability to just kind of get this ambient knowledge was much greater when I started out. And I think something that I'm really kind of obsessed with is how do we apprentice less experienced people by CCing them on emails and inviting them to meetings and consciously setting up that way of learning by watching other people. And I think it was just a little bit more organic when I was starting out. And I think that's a really big change in the early end of the marketplace. I think the last point you made is something that I have been certainly thinking about lately. And I started my career working at Deloitte Consulting, which is a professional services firm. And the business model of professional services really relies on apprenticeship and mentorship for that matter, and really being able to learn from others, particularly those who've done it before, so that 
they can focus on other things and that you can take on more ownership or responsibility. And even if you don't work in professional services or in a client service facing profession, I think particularly when you're early in your career, those opportunities to learn and get feedback in context in the moment from other people who do know more than you can be so incredibly valuable. Part of the reason why I bring this up is that there was, I literally just posted about LinkedIn on this this morning, but there was an article, I think recently in the New York Times, where they basically asked, like, can you advance your career working remote? And there was a section in there really paid special attention to folks who were more junior in their career and what would happen to them if they weren't getting those opportunities to, like you were saying, to overhear conversations, to get in the moment feedback. I'd be curious to know from either what you've seen or what you think, are there ways where we can create those opportunities if by chance not everyone is going to be have the ability to go to the office every day? Or how might we think about it or do that? Yes, I think there are always ways to do everything. The difference is what used to happen organically or by accident like overhearing the senior person next to you because they talked on the phone a lot, now has to be deliberate. And in order for it to be deliberate, you have to acknowledge that it's necessary. So I think a lot of people who came of age in a more apprenticeship model, maybe your investment banker sitting around other bankers late into the night, or you were on a trading desk with somebody else, we sort of forget how much we learned that way. And so we assume that junior people are just learning that way because we didn't plan it. It just kind of happened. And so I think it's drawing people's attention and leadership to say, we can no longer assume that this is going to happen. We have to make this happen. And there are a million ways to do that. For instance, BCCing a junior person on a lot of emails and saying, look, don't respond, but I just want you to know, join this conference call or Zoom call with me so that you can be part of this meeting, being more inclusive in who's invited to meetings, who is included on documents, having more formal mentorship and sponsorship programs. Those are all really successful ways. We just have to remember that what used to happen by accident now needs to be something that we put on our to-do list and have a strategy for I love all those ideas. And I think you're right. There are always ways to do things. We just have to commit to thinking about how we can do them. One other thing that you mentioned was about technology. And I know this is something you certainly have studied or written about. And then certainly, I also think during the the time of you studying this, we've seen many waves of technology in terms of social media, other types of technologies that are out there. But as I think it within the context of careers and even branding for that matter, one of the things that I think I've seen change, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that I do think for a long time, when it came to career development or professional development, it often was within the four walls of your company and organization. But because of technology, very simple example is something like LinkedIn, the opportunities for advancement, development, growth don't necessarily have to be limited to just the four walls of your company and definitely are not if you are working remote. You know, Is that something you've seen as well? Or, or what, what kind of interesting things have you seen in terms of the intersection of technology and enabling opportunities for growth and development in, in a career of an employee? Let's talk about LinkedIn. I was an official spokesperson for LinkedIn for six years from 2009 to 2015. So I really saw the rise of that technology, particularly with college students and, and business school students and, and recent graduates. And there are a couple of things. One is I don't think we acknowledge how much the existence of LinkedIn has played a role in this sort of great resignation war for talent. When I had that first job at Working Woman, I would go to work. This was pre-LinkedIn. I would go to work. I liked my job. So I went back the next day. 
Now you can go to work, like your job, come home, go on LinkedIn and say, well, Al's job looks so much better. Well, Steve's job looks so much better. Well, Susan did something really cool today. And even if you are perfectly happy, you are still seeing this constant stream that there might be something better. There might be something better. And that adds a pressure that never existed. I don't care how happy and secure you are. There's always that little voice that says, maybe there's something else out there. So I think we have to acknowledge that reality. And the second thing about LinkedIn is particularly baby boomer generation. Working for Deloitte was your brand, right? It was everything I needed to know. Now you not only have to have a good job, you have to have a profile on the internet, which is available to the entire world that also shows how great you are in the context of that job. Now, I think that's a huge opportunity for workers, but it's also an added pressure. And I think we look at that in the personal world of Instagram and and Facebook and so on. But I think when you look at it professionally, it's a two-sided coin. It's an opportunity, but it's also a tremendous pressure. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. I think maybe one way to segue into this is the fact that I know you talk with a lot of other leaders and thinkers, and particularly folks who are either executives or, you know, kind of in leadership roles of employers, of universities, as well as you probably also talk to some job seekers. And I would also would love to maybe hear from you right now, what are some of the things that you're hearing, particularly that early in career job seekers should really think about in terms of how they can develop their careers or land their first career in this new kind of age? I think that there is a disconnect of what job seekers, particularly early career, really want and what companies think that they want. And mm-hmm. so you see this with things like what happened at Goldman Sachs, right? And some of these very top tier organizations where the companies sort of say, we're paying you so much money. Why are you not happy? And the employees say, well, the money is great and we want it and it's really important, but we also don't want to work 20 hours a day. And we also want to have real deadlines, not fake deadlines. We also want to be able to go and exercise and think about our well-being. And what sort of happened, I think, can really be drawn um, a straight line from the rise of Silicon Valley, which is you had tech companies that said, we will pay you really well and we will give you a really good lifestyle. And by knowing that the Googles of the world existed and whether all of that is true or not, and it's not always true for people of color and it's not always true for women and people over 40 and, and all that, we could talk about those details. But I think you have this kind of ideal scenario that a good job pays well, has great work-life integration, allows you to be hybrid, cares about your well-being, gives you free lunch, gives you friends to hang out with, you know, and everything's great. And our expectations are very high for what that actually looks like. And, And so I think that idealism is out there in a way that, again, just kind of like that LinkedIn idea always makes people think that there is something better. And I think what would be more what I advise the job seeker or the individual is find what you want. Don't get caught up in what you think you should want. And I think we look for those ideals as opposed to looking for what a good fit would be as opposed to the ideal scenario compared to everything else in the world. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I'm glad you brought that up. It's interesting. So on the employer side of things, because I I think you're right, the, the challenge comes when there's a gap between the expectation and the reality or kind of the gap between what's said and then what's actually done. I wonder to myself, would we just be better off of sometimes being transparent about, look, we're not going to give you X, Y, or Z or whatever it is, but here's what we are going to give you. And if that's for you, then wonderful. And if, if it's not, then maybe this isn't necessarily the best fit. And in some ways, it 
it reminds me a little bit, I'm sure you're familiar with Reid Hoffman's book, The Alliance, and just this idea around, hey, um, and for those of you who are not, who haven't read The Alliance, it's a book by Reid Hoffman, but it's really this framework between a manager and an employee of aligning around incentives and around what each person wants and committing to things that you will do and committing to things that you won't do and working collaboratively towards that versus being against each other. But sometimes I do wonder if employers would be better off just being a little bit more transparent around what we can do and what we can't do. And then on the flip side of that, for employees, to your point, being able to zone in on the things that are most important to you and, and acknowledging that if it's not going to be perfect, that there are going to be some things that you may not get out of the specific job that you have in this moment. And that may be okay for right now, but that may also change in a year, in two years, in three years down the road. Yeah. And I think that's why people leave managers and people are also loyal to managers because yeah. often a company can have a policy, but a manager will give you the wiggle room. Like, Al, you're yeah. great. I know you like yeah. to leave on Wednesdays at two to go to yoga, like no problem. And so that is an alliance in yeah. a lot of ways. My greatest hope, if I were going to be really optimistic of what could come out of the pandemic is that employers and employees have more options. So for instance, if you're somebody who wants to work in person in an office, there's nothing wrong with that. You have a right to want to go to an office, find a company that wants that. And if you're somebody who wants hybrid, find a company who wants that. Right now, everybody's trying to be all things to all people. And I wish some companies would just come out and say, you know what, we're going to be all in person. And if that's not right for you, we wish you all the best. That's just not the right fit. Instead, we're trying to find this one size fits all that's just not going to happen. I think you're totally right. And I, I think it goes back to marketing and branding 101. If you're all things to all customers, you're, you're nobody to no one, right? And, and I think that's probably true in, in this case. And I think, honestly, the downside of what's potentially going to happen when you try to be all things to all people and promise all these things, you know, I take the hybrid versus in office one for that matter. So if you commit to being, you know, people can work from anywhere, but then you don't necessarily update how you calibrate performance management or promotions or career advancement, well, you're going to lose it on on that side of the house, right? And so any company, any executive who is good at making decisions should very much understand you can't optimize for everything. And so fundamentally, like, what are you, where are you going to pick and choose? And I do, like you, I do believe that there's anything that we can do for this kind of future of work. It is to give more people more options for how they work so that they can find the path that works for them whether that is in office or whether it's remote, whether that's full-time, whether that's part-time. I'm sure you saw this article too, because I know you read this stuff, but there was recently an article in the Wall Street Journal about people who left full-time employment to take six-figure part-time contracting work. But you know, part of that was fueled by the fact that they had some priorities in their life that really meant that working part-time and being remote or having less than full-time hours, that, that's what it required. But for the work that they do in this new world of work, that was a potential option. And so that's one example where I think if we can make the future of work work, it will enable more people like that to have more options for being able to live the life that they need to live. I, I couldn't agree more. And and I think that companies are going to have to start to make some choices. People have been making choices and that choice is to leave or as you yeah. said, to choose the freelancing. But I, I agree. I think this idea of trying to be all things to all people is just not going to work. And I think a lot of good companies are going to lose very, very good people because they're going to go to the places where there's more clarity. Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about the future of work, but one of the things I know you think about this a lot and you talk to a lot of people and you read a lot of stuff. What's something that's underreported? What's something that's not in the dialogue and discourse that should be? I think it's in the dialogue and discourse 
and I still think it's underreported, is the mental health ramifications of what we have all just been through with the pandemic. I think that everybody had a very different experience of COVID, and the people who are coming back to offices today are not the same people who left two years ago. And I think if companies don't acknowledge, provide resources, keep their awareness up, I think there are a lot of people who are not going to be able to produce good work because they don't feel supported. On a positive note, I think the younger generations have much less stigma to talk about mental health in the workplace. But I think that this idea that we're all going to come back and everything's normal and let's forget about the trauma that we've all been through is just not going to cut it. So I think being aware that some people are suffering quietly, that if some people are underperforming or not showing up to work, that there might be a mental health reason as opposed to a laziness or a lack of caring. So I would just say amping up our antenna for mental health issues is something that we can't talk enough about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, look, like you said, um, we've all experienced the past two years, but we've all, it's all, it's impacted all of us, but in, in, in different ways. And so two things that come to mind, I think the first thing is, is that one of the things that I was always really fortunate with uh, in my career is that I always felt like I had managers or leaders who understood that even though they were asking me to work hard or to do a lot, that I was still fundamentally a human being. And that particularly when, you know, in the context of like work-life balance, when they were asking me to work more or to do things outside of the traditional realm, they also understood that that was always coming at a cost and that I was still a human being and not a robot. And they were always willing to make space and provide encouragement and provide support if there were challenges on this. And I think that one of the things that COVID really in the global pandemic really showed is that we are humans and we're not robots. And when something ha like big like that happens, it's really hard to just pretend like nothing happened and it's not impacting us. And one of the things about work-life balance, if you believe in it or, or want to have a dialogue about it, is that I think we've gotten to this world where work has encroached on our lives, but we're never given the space or permission to kind of flex back right? And, and to show up, you know, to show up and as a human sometimes. And I think during COVID, at least people that I talked to, there were some people who did feel like they had a little bit of permission to do that, just because everyone was finally seeing just how much it was impacting everyone. And so I guess where I'm going with this is, is two things. Number one, uh, as a people manager, I didn't necessarily get training when I started to know how to handle those situations. And I was fortunate that even when they, those did come up, I had resources around me to be able to you know, ask for help to be like, hey, like there's a situation, I know it's out of my scope. Can I get some help with this? But I think that is one thing that I hope to see more of because to your point, those issues are there. And if we want to make sure we take care of people, we also need to train people to know how to handle that in addition to certainly providing all those benefits. But I think the other thing is, is that if we're going to continuously ask people to work really hard and sometimes to encroach on parts of our life because work doesn't always fit within the bounds of nine to five, I do think we have to think more deeply about how do we ensure that these people can still perform at a peak level by helping them take care of themselves, by giving them what they need to, to be the humans that they are. Yeah, beautifully said. And, and I like your comment about becoming a manager. This needs to be part of just standard manager training to mm -hmm. make resources available. It doesn't mean you have, everyone has to be a psychologist, but you have to be able to identify issues and know where to refer people when you see it. And to remember that we're all human. I, I think that's beautifully said. So I want to talk about Recalculating, which is uh, your latest book, and we'll put it in the show notes for folks. But as I was reading it, one of the, the main takeaways I got from it, and particularly with this notion of the GPS, which I'd love to have you kind of talk about and frame up, is that change is, is a feature, not a bug. And so the GPS is not just about a one-time thing, but really having something that you can take with you as you navigate the changes, which again, are there by design, not by accident. 
is that a fair takeaway or a fair read? Yeah, and thank you for reading the book. I love a good metaphor like any writer. So I'll, yeah. I'll tell you the whole vision. When COVID hit in March, 2020, all of my speaking business went away. And it was a really, really daunting moment of just sudden change. And I was sitting in my apartment in New York City, looking out the window and I saw cars on the street. And I truly just had this flash of an image that the pandemic was like all of us driving in our cars. And at the same time, all of our GPSs kind of glitching for a minute and saying, recalculating, you can't go the way you were going before. And when I really sat and kind of reflected on it, I thought that there were two things that kind of made me optimistic. And one is exactly what you're getting at. I know that when I'm driving, literally driving my car and my GPS says recalculating, I feel kind of comforted because it says it's okay, right? We can't go this way or there's traffic, but I know another way to get you where you want to go. So it always proves that there are always options. You don't have to have a dead end and, and that's it. And number two, when you really think about a GPS, it never says, you know, Al, I'm really sorry. You have to go back to your driveway and start your entire trip over again because this path didn't work out. It takes all of the progress you've made and all of the learning you have, and it incorporates that into the next step. And so when I started writing the book with this theme and interviewing people, what struck me was that I had thought about recalculating like COVID, where it was this very distinct moment in time, a crossroads, go left or go right. And when I started interviewing people, what they taught me is that's actually kind of rare. It's more often that we have these little changes over time, every day, where we're constantly pivoting. And I really liked that mission because as I think about my own career, there are very few crossroads of A and B. It's often these little choices that kind of move us in directions. And that means that we can always choose again. And the people I admire are the ones who don't commit to one thing and say, that's it. You know, I'm never making a change ever again. They're flexible all the time. And so I think there are a lot of ways kind of on a micro and a macro scale to think about recalculating as a positive view of career success. Yeah. And one of the things just to follow up on that is let's say that you ascribe to this idea that, yeah, you, you, you're going to be recalculating. How do you know when to, right? Like, how do you know when to kind of accept that? Like, all right, I'm going to be changing directions versus staying the course. Like, how do you help people kind of think through that? Because I think, you know, if you are someone who, you know, ascribes to the fact that putting in this context that your career path's not going to be linear straight to the top, and you can embrace the fact that there it could go in a lot of different ways. How do you know when it when to to listen to dial into something versus to let it kind of keep going, if you will? I don't think you're gonna like this as an MBA, but I really believe in listening to your gut and trusting your instincts. So mm -hmm. when you are flying and you are in the flow and everything is going great, keep going. Like yeah. that feels good. But yeah. I know we all know that little moment where you say, ah, "I'm getting a little bored," or "I'm not sure I really like this," and then. Here's the important part. When you have that little feeling, and we all know what I'm talking about, don't immediately jump off a cliff, right? And change everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think we sometimes do that too quickly. So one of the things I really like, and there's a great new book called Choose Possibility by a, a woman who was a, a head of many, many companies in Silicon Valley. And she talks about like really trying a lot of different things. So when you have that feeling of, mm, like, I'm not sure that I want to stay at this company, don't immediately quit and find another job. Instead, have coffee with 10 people who work in 10 different companies and start to think about your options. Kind of throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall and see what's out there as opposed to trying to find one other path. And I think that's probably the biggest change I've gone through in my career is I always thought it was a choice between A or B, black or white. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. it's usually a choice between a thousand other gray areas 
But if you're doing great, keep going. But when you yeah. have that little feeling, don't make a change, start exploring yeah. the change yeah. that you want to make. I love that. And, and I'm glad you brought up Sekender Cassidy's book. Uh, one of the things I often talk a lot about with MBAs, particularly those who have graduated, is for the majority of MBA students, the first job they take out of business school is not going to be the last one. Like 99.5% of people, particularly knowing that most students graduate from business school between the ages of 27 to 35, right? Like it's just not going to be their last job and probably won't be their last career and won't be their last career change. But oftentimes when I talk to students who take a job, they end up not being a fit. There's a lot of shame or guilt mm -hmm. that is associated and when they get to that point where they realize that what it is that they're doing is not what they're doing, it hinders them a lot and it, and it impacts them, understandably so. But to the point you made, well, two points you made. One, I think this idea of the GPS can be powerful in the sense of, again, going back to the feature, not the bug. It is a feature that you may choose something that may end up not being exactly the direction that you wanted to go in and that you may have a chance to recalculate to another direction that might be better. Like that is okay. Like that's going to be natural. But to the point from Sekinder's book, in those moments, instead of feeling guilt or shame, can you choose wonder? Can you choose curiosity? Can you choose exploration? And maybe that's the right frame or mindset shift uh, that can bring people out of feeling struggle, like they're struggling and more around what else could I do? I love that. And the other thing I would say, particularly in that idea, and also I do a lot of work with military veterans, and the same is true of your first job out of the military, is that it you know, very rarely sticks. And one person calls it your first pancake, right? <laughs> the first pancake is never the best. You have to make a, a few. That's a good one. Yeah. I love that. But one of the things I would say too is, and I wrote a whole chapter about this in recalculating because of so many people who brought it up, you can sometimes recalculate right where you are. So let's yeah. say you don't yeah. love your job. Maybe the difference is you take on more leadership responsibility in the affinity network that you're part of. Or maybe you get into a better workout routine and that puts you in a better headspace. Maybe you start networking in your company. Maybe you start uh, taking some trainings on management before you're a manager. So feeling like everything isn't perfect doesn't mean that you have to navigate to something completely different. It sometimes means you just have to make a little bit of a degree change in one direction or another. And I, I just think some people worry that they have to make more change than they actually do. Sure. I agree. And I think the point you just made, when you were talking with people who you were interviewing, a lot of the changes, they were less about the big things and more about the steps in the moment, right? And just as a really specific example of this, uh, Natasha Chan, who I've featured on the podcast before, and shout out to Natasha. So she was in a role, she was doing really well, but she could see that she had really mastered what she was doing. And so she knew at some point there would need to be another opportunity down the road. But to the example you gave, she did get involved with her ERG, mostly just to expand her network and to meet other people who were like-minded. But it was through that where another opportunity came about because someone else that she met saw that what her work was and what she was doing and said, hey, I think you could be a good fit for this. And it was a very small thing that she did in terms of just showing up. And even though she did know that there was a career change on the horizon, it wasn't something she was ready to immediately do in the moment. But just that small, simple thing is what eventually led to a much, much bigger thing, you know, a couple months down the road. But to your point, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily the, the big things. It can really just be the, the things that you're doing right now. And to the other point, I think you're absolutely right. We often think of the recalculating really as the transformation, right? When in reality, sometimes it doesn't need to be like those milestones. Like it, it can just be the things that just make your day-to-day -day a little bit better, a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more impactful. If you're looking to make a change, that's that's great and wonderful. But I just think we can think much more expansively about what that could be. I love that. Um, one other thing in the book that you talked about was just around, um, I want to kind of combine two things because they, they tie together nicely, but it was around being able to kind of 
build your personal brand through a career story, as well as just network, right? And tapping your personal relationships. Could you talk maybe a little bit about how those two play together? And also just knowing how different the world of work is now, how might someone think about that, whether they're remote, in person, or somewhere in between? You know, this is kind of an area where I think work isn't that different. The need Mm -hmm. to have a reputation and the need to meet people. I think that's kind of been a hallmark of certainly my entire time in the workplace. I was just talking uh, yesterday with two guys who had come right out of undergrad. They were analysts at a private equity firm, and they were asking me questions about networking. What do we talk about? Right. Mm -hmm. What do do I bring up in the conversations? And I said, well, what do you like to talk about? And they were like, what do you mean? And I said, well, (laughs) what are you interested in? And they sort of thought that they had to invent this thing to do when you're networking and you don't. I think you have to really be authentically interested in the work that you do or the company you work for, the industry that you're in. And, you know, my little trick, and I think you and I have demonstrated this, is I read as much as I possibly can about my industry and my business, not because I'm trying to network, but because I'm really interested in it. So if you look at the things that you're genuinely interested in that are professionally related, and you read up on that, you are always going to have fodder to talk about to anybody else who's interested in that stuff. So reading the Wall Street Journal. You know, reading the industry publications, watching Netflix, you know, all of that is authentic to you. So my favorite question to ask people is always like you did, what are you watching these days? You know, what podcasts are you listening to? What books are you reading? And it becomes a jumping off point. And from the personal brand perspective, I think that it's really about deciding what you want to be known for. When people talk about you and you're not around, what do you want them to say? And I yeah. think, you know, very simple exercise I do is what are three words that you want people to use to describe you? And I don't want you to go up and say, hi, Al, my name is Lindsay Pollock. I'm a dynamic, authentic thought leader. I have to do things that make you say, wow, Lindsay's really a thought leader because she was the first one to tell me about this because I know she has read this. You have to take action that demonstrates the qualities that you want. And that's what I think people miss. I think they say the word of what they want to be, but they don't take the action. So think about however you want to be perceived. And I think you see this in business school interviews and job interviews. So, well, it says here on your resume that you're a leader. Tell me about a time that you were a leader. And so I think we have to make that shift from personal brand being a word to personal brand being actions. I love that example. And it's funny, I recently did a a personal brand workshop with someone else about a week ago, and we were getting ready for the workshop and we were doing an exercise where you just outlined one of the things that we did where I originally I'd said, you know, write three words down that describe yourself. And my partner on this said, Hey, why don't we try this in a different way? Instead of saying this, why don't we say, Hey, tell us three examples of things you did where someone gave you positive feedback. And the reason why she suggested it is for what you just said, the three words are, are great, but what really brings it home are the actual do as the doing piece. And I think it was a much more effective exercise in terms of focusing on the doing, fully knowing that, like, yes, the words do eventually matter. But I love the point that you made there. I know we're running out of time here, but before we we end, I always try to end on an optimistic note because I'm a a glass half full kind of guy. There's challenges out there in the workplace for sure. And uh, and I don't want to belittle them by any means. But what are you optimistic about for the future of work? I'm always optimistic about community. I think that when people come together in community in any way, shape, or form, being listeners to this podcast, 
being in an ERG together, being in a professional association, getting involved in your alumni network. I think that we have all been alone a lot. And I think we've all experienced isolation. And to me, the absolute opportunity we have now is to remember the power of community. So don't hesitate to connect with other people and kind of re-engage with any communities that you belong to, uh, whether it's virtual or in person, it doesn't matter at all. I think that that's what we need to triple, quadruple down on. And I think companies that create environments of community are probably going to be the ones that are successful. So thank you for, for being in community with me. Oh, thank you. This is a great, great way to end it. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining today, for getting a chance to share your knowledge and insights and research. If people want to learn more about you, we'll put the book in the show notes, but uh, where can they go? Where can they find you? How should they uh, engage with you further? Thank you so much. Um, my website is lindsaypollock.com, but I am super active like Al is on LinkedIn, and I'd be delighted to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.